Hey, Friday Night Lights fans. It's Not Only Football, Friday Night Lights and Beyond is an episode-by-episode discussion of the hit TV series Friday Night Lights, hosted by yours truly, Scott Porter, who played Jason Street on the show, and my two wonderful co-hosts, me, Zach Guilford, a.k.a. Matt Saracen, and me, Mae Whitman, a.k.a. someone who wasn't on the show but really, really loves it a lot. We will also bring on some special guests, answer your questions, and tell you about what's going on in our lives today. It's not only football. Friday Night Lights and Beyond is available now wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose! Hey everybody, welcome to Dr. Who Podcast. We are just uh, appreciative that you're here with us and thank you for supporting people to support the, the products that keep the winds in the sail of the Corolla Pirate Ship. Uh, don't forget to check out Dr. TV for the streaming show. Particularly on Wednesdays, we've got some shows there. They're up actually, all the previous shows are up at drew.com. That has been creating a bit of stir. We're talking to some controversial figures there. Not necessarily people I agree with, but I feel like I had to talk to them and see what they have to say. And it's actually expanded my understanding of what happened through COVID. So much of what was going on, if you remember back in those days, I was like, what What, what are we doing? What's happening? Why? Why are we doing this? I'm starting to understand how it happened, why it happened, and uh, some of the excesses of our uh, of our complex bureaucracies in this country. Today, the guest is Andrew Newberg. He's a neuroscientist who studies the relationship between brain and mental states, particularly uh, uh, what we uh, let's see. Where's the term? I want to get it out here. Really, hold on. Uh, Okay, here it is. Attempt to understand the nature of religious and spiritual practices and attitudes. Ah, that's the word I'm looking for. Neurotheology is the word I was searching for. You can follow Andrew at andrewnewberg.com, N-E-W-B-E-R-G, also Twitter at Andrew Newberg. The book, The Varieties of Spiritual Experience, 21st Century Research and Perspective, uh, out since September. And uh, contemporary psychology and neuroscience laboratories around the world learn about the elusive yet profound inner events. And uh, it seems to me the last time a book was named The Variety of Spiritual Experiences, it was probably William James that wrote that book, I'm guessing. That's probably the last time that title appeared on a book, no? That is, uh, I believe that's pretty much correct. And, and thanks again for having me on the program. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, that was the inspiration for this. Um, we're big fans of uh, William James's work. And uh, if your audience isn't totally familiar with William James, he was an incredible uh, – scholar and psychologist uh, back about 100 years ago. And uh, as part of the Gifford Lectures, a very famous uh, lecture series, he uh, ultimately put together a book that was referred to. His title was The Varieties of Religious Experience. Uh-huh. And we thought we should broaden it a little bit and, uh, and and give it a little bit of an update. 100 years, some things have changed in, those, in that time frame. So Yeah, it's fascinating. That's what we're me. talking about. It's so weird to me that it's taken a hundred years to get here, and it, and he was such a consummate. He was really a clinician. He sort of invented psychology, and he just right. was this great observer and and would documented things without a lot of. I mean, he had some editorial detail, but he really was just giving it to you in, in, as close to the experience as he could give. And he went into in the variety of spiritual experiences. He went. He went there. He went everywhere. He was just not looking at Christianity. He was looking at. I think he looked at you know all the Eastern Satori kinds of experiences and ultimate experiences and all that stuff. Right. 
Yes, absolutely. I, I, he, he really did cover a, a wide variety. I mean, I certainly, you know, it had more of a Judeo-Christian perspective to it, which was his, his uh, area of foundation and his belief system that he came from. But, uh, but definitely, you know, very open to the mystical. Uh, he talked a lot about that aspect of experiences and, and talked a lot about, um, you know, some of the, the good and the bad experiences that people have. And he would talk about, uh, he had uh, chapters that were titled saintliness, for example. Mm. Um, so, you know, some, <laughs> some very interesting ways of thinking about it. But as you said, also, I think one of the really important points about all of this is that it was, you know, it was kind of based on what science could tell us in that time. And, and so it was very observational uh, from talking to his clients, patients, people that he would meet, people he would get to know uh, about uh, those people who had these kinds of experiences. And so, you know, while it was an incredible, it was really the first time that anybody kind of put all of this together and talked about religion and spirituality from that psychological and and even to a certain extent, a little bit of the neurological, you know, he certainly, you know, had enough knowledge of, of brain functions and that, that there was a relationship going on there. Yeah. But, uh, but again, you know, and here we, you know, now here we are 120 some odd years later where we can say, all right, you know, what's on the, you know, what are the brain scans look like of these individuals? What, you know, can we do a much more detailed evaluation of the kinds of experiences that people have and what they're like and how they affect people? So to really kind of take what, what we thought was such a wonderful start, but, you know, obviously had its limitations being 100 years ago, um, to, to really try to advance this whole perspective on how we can understand this, you know, as you use the term neurotheological perspective, what's the relationship between the brain and those religious and spiritual experiences that people have? And how can we use this to understand the importance of these experiences for people, how it affects their psyche, their psychology? Um, so th there's so much very exciting work that, that we have now been able to kind of work uh, from and, uh, and, a, and a big future as far as the research goes, too. There's a lot for us to learn. All right, we got a lot to get to, but and I don't want to belabor <laughs> the historical too much. Any Please forward, do that. But I I do want to really contextualize this for people as we move this forward. That am I right to say that before William James, psychology was a field of philosophy, right? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. and so so the, I just want people to understand that the extra 120 years may sound like a lot a lot of time, but in in science years, th that's n that's nothing. That's a blink, and we've yes. covered so much territory. But let me start out with, since I bring up the context of uh, from which psychology emerged, you know, I, I like you, uh, I'm very interested in the brain and the, the experiences that, that are created by the brain. And one of the sort of procedural ways I have dealt with trying to figure out and navigate the multiple theoretical frames of psychology were you frozen? No, you're still there. Okay, good. I'm there. Uh, that that the you know the the psychology has all these different or has had all these different philosophical sorts of fields, let's say. And I've always in my career just gone, well, what does the brain tell me? <laughs> the, the brain will answer for me. The brain will tell me. However, and this, so I want to start out with a philosophical question. Yeah. And I have found that very useful, by the way. Like, oh, this this idea of the frame of you know. Some some particular field of psychology fits better with the the what I understand about the brain and what we can see about the brain, what the neuroscience tells us. But philosophically, how is that different than phrenology? 
rather than looking at bumps on the head, we're looking at little light-up areas of the brain. How is it different? Defend that. Well, you, you know, there is some similarities. In fact, I've often thought about that. Uh, you know, and, and in many ways, a lot of the cognitive neuroscience that we have today has that phrenological perspective a little bit. Um, you know, we talk about the different areas and what they do and how they function. Um, I, I think, you know, obviously there's far more detail and far more ability to think about these areas in the brain in, 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 a, in a way that we've never been able to do before. So, you know, that, it, you know, in, in phrenology, they were talking about, you know, very kind of unusual things, uh, uh, you know, about, about how our mind would work. Um, and like you said, it was very philosophical. Yeah, based on bumps about, in our head, the phrenology yeah, is re- reading and, the and, bumps on our scalp, essentially. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But but there'd be like truthful. <laughs> there would be an area for truthfulness and an area for sublimity and, and you know all these kind of strange things. But um, you know, here we really are able to say, okay, you know, if you're going to use different cognitive processes to um, to, to try to analyze a problem, to do moral reasoning, to to think about these things, we can see the areas of the brain that seem to be involved and get, you know, very, very detailed. So, you know, there, there, there's an essence of it, but it's definitely, you know, something that has far more advanced than what we've ever had before. And I think, you know, part of where we're also going now, um, and, and I think this is true, you know, not only for neurotheology, but for cognitive neuroscience more broadly, is that we understand that there are these incredible networks in the brain. And so it's not just, you know, this one part of the brain that turns on or another part of the brain that shuts down when a person, you know, becomes spiritual or when a person solves a math problem. It's using lots of different parts of the brain that are very relevant and very uh, interconnected. And so, you know, when, when even when I get asked about, you know, is there like a spiritual part of the brain? I would say, well, no, I mean, there's, there's so many different parts of the brain that all become involved. Uh, and, and that makes sense when you think about the richness and the complexity of these kinds of experiences and beliefs. There's, there's cognitive elements, there's emotional elements, there's, there's the experiential pieces and so forth. So all of that kind of fits together in this very integrated kind of way yeah. to help us really think about what the brain does. Yeah, that, that's, but, but there is that essence. Of no, it, I, you know, I would go here. So here I would, I would argue the same way as you. It's like, it's, it's a, it's a, integrated building so to speak it's you know we have multiple observations over multiple situations yeah. and and then you're you're building an integrative structure and it all kind of fits together and makes sense and yet some people don't have the same pattern as others <laughs> then you go oh, shit and that's where that's where it gets weird right well and you know this is this is a large you know and this spills over very much so into this whole discussion about the varieties of spiritual experiences but um, but even, you know, in all of the brain imaging studies that I've done and that are, that are out there in the literature, um, there is this sort of interesting tension, if you will, between the individual and then the, the, the need in science, at least to get that sort of statistical, you know, what are a thousand people's, you know, there's even been discussions that to even get a decent study, you need thousands of people in a, in a study to, to tell something about what's going on in the brain. Now, statistically, that may be true. But when I solve a math problem, I might use a slightly different part of my brain than when you solve a math problem. And certainly, if I have a spiritual experience, which is unique to me, that's going to be different than the spiritual experiences that might be unique to you or somebody else. And so um, that to me is, is a fact. You know, I, I actually talk to people about how neurotheology, I think, can be a beneficial thing, a beneficial field, even for the, the more, you know, the more neuroscientific areas of, of how we look and study its science because 
it kind of pushes us to think about this tension and to figure out how we can actually get at, um, you know, looking at the individual as well as trying to look, you know, statistically at what we might be able to say about what are the areas of the brain that seem to get involved when people are involved in religious and spiritual experiences. So I'm going to jump ahead to an observation, then we're going to back into your material. Mostly I'm doing this because I want to make sure I hit this. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I have noticed clinically that there seems to be several elements that are commonly required for not, – not necessarily or not you know, without exception required, but generally required uh, for people to recover from – severe psychiatric or, or psychic uh, injury or psychic challenges. And it's generally some sort of faith. So they have to have some, I guess, hope I guess, or whatever right. that faith is. But sometimes right. that faith is about letting go. Like alcoholics have to let go and then have faith that the world won't spin off its axis. So so faith means different things in different contexts. Um, service, Absolutely. service, so faith, service uh, of other humans. So, so to me, the service is really sort of meaning making, right? You find meaning in that, and that's a very common place for meaning for humans. But there's this third piece that's sort of ineffable. I can't categorize it. It's not specifically the same thing for everybody. Everyone describes it differently, but they all talk about it the same way. And that's this some sort of spiritual experience, something. Uh, yeah. And that's for people that need to return to a – I mean, it's one thing to go from ill to chronically ill, but to go from psychically injured to thriving, something of a spiritual nature seems to be necessary. What is that? Why is that necessary? What can you say about it? Well, well, there's some really important parts to that question. Um, let, let, let me take the spiritual piece first because that, you know, in and of itself is quite fascinating and an important part of neurotheology, I think, which is – you. Know, how do we define what is spiritual and what does it mean for people? In fact, that's part of what we spend a lot of time doing uh, in the context of, of our book, The Varieties of Spiritual Experience. But, um, you know, that to me is in many ways such a crucial thing for us to try to get at, because, as you said, um, you know, we all have lots of different kinds of experiences. And every once in a while, we have something that we refer to as a spiritual experience. And what exactly is it that defines that? And so, you know, part of what we have tried to do through all of our studies is to get at the phenomenological aspect of those experiences, to ask people what they're really feeling. What are they, you know, what is the actual, um, what are they, how do they describe it? What are the feelings, the thoughts, the emotions and so forth that are a fundamental part uh, of that experience? And when we do look at thousands of these different experiences, there do tend to be some core elements that I think help people say that was spiritual and that's something that's different than our everyday reality experiences. So for example, um, some of these core components that we've looked at include a, a feeling of intensity. You know, there's something about these experiences that's more intense than any of the other experiences that we've ever had. You know, it's something, whether it's an emotion, whether it's a, a conception, a thought, a feeling, um, these are experiences that seem to be dramatically different than our everyday reality kinds of experiences. Um, and, and, and we can start to think about where in the brain might that be, you know, that might help us to understand why an experience is so intense. Areas like our limbic system. You better, that, you better get him a bone or a chewy yeah, or some, something, <laughs> something, some yeah, snack or something. All right, we'll yeah, take. I apologize. Hang on. 
So we'll find out. We'll find out who the doggy is and what his name is. We're gonna chop this out so the audience won't hear. (coughs) Good call. (coughs) I figure it's not gonna get better. It's gonna get worse. You're right. He he was intent. No, he was in a flow. I mean, he's trying. No, to... no, no. The dog was intent. Oh, I can see yes. the dog was. The dog was intent. Yeah, right? the dog was gonna, gonna, gonna. I think Andrew was really zoned in on your conversation. Yeah, and yeah. Didn't necessarily notice it the way you and I did. Yeah. You watched the Dutch Grand Prix. Uh, <laughs> as somebody put it on Twitter the the other just yesterday, I'm getting tired of seeing. Uh, uh, Verstappen win everything. <laughs> it was interesting when he was the underdog. Now he's winning everything. No, it's, it's interesting <laughs> to watch everyone else fuck themselves over. And lose. I guess that's, that's true. what I've been having fun with. Well, but isn't that there's there's profound wisdom in that? Yeah. We sh- hope you keep this in the piece today. Well, we, Andrew just went to feed his dog. Is he okay? Oh, sure. cool? I think so. Yeah, I'm so sorry. No I'm, problem. No, it gives Gary and I a chance to talk no about the problem, Grand Prix Andrew. for a second. What, what, are, you, what are you guys chatting about? Uh, the Vers- Dutch Grand Prix and for Formula One. Uh, I've, I've recently become a Formula One fan in the past like three but, weeks. So. But this is the this is the slow and steady wins the race thing. If, you know, if you if you just keep going, people torch out around you. They make mistakes. They make errors. Just just don't make any mistakes. Right, but it's it's fascinating how you have to make the right choice at every turn. You know, yes, like yeah. and it's yeah. it's fascinating how some teams just make the wrong choice every chance they have. Yeah. Ferrari and some some folks but, but like it's, Red it's, Bull. It's usually being aggressive though. It's usually yeah. trying, you know, and that's an interest. Now sometimes aggression pays off, but I bet statistically, I bet it's better to slow and steady. I mean, that's the that's the go. that's yeah. the parable. But anyway, let's go back to the podcast. Let's go I'm back sorry, to it. Should I just start that whole answer again? No, well, not all the way again. We were just, you were just saying that it's intensity is is the thing. So that's sure. something, that's one feature. What else? So. Um, well, let me let me just do the intensity briefly. Okay. Let me just sure. get back into that. You bet. So again, thank you. Sorry about that. Um, so, so one of the core elements of, of the spiritual experience is a feeling of intensity. It's something that's you know, more so, more intense feeling of love, uh, a feeling of awe. It could be you know, some kind of um, uh, a visceral feeling that just kind of denotes that it's different than our everyday reality experiences. Uh, another characteristic of these experiences is a sense of unity, the sense that the person feels deeply connected and they feel at one with um, some higher power, higher being, God, the universe in some way. And that sense of unity, that sense of oneness um, also seems to be a very important characteristic. Now, again, you know, we all can feel that in very mild ways. So, you know, that's why it kind of blends in with the intensity aspect of the experience as well. And also, uh, you know, one of the things to connected back a little bit to, to your point uh, about how it sort of transforms people uh, is is a sense of clarity, a sense of understanding. They, they sort of get it for the first time. They, they understand the world or they understand their, their own issues and problems in a way that they never have before. Uh, that becomes important. And that is part of what transforms them. It changes the way they think. They sort of understand the world in a whole new way. They think about things in a completely different way. And, and that in and of itself um, is, is a very fundamental part of the experience. And, and the last core element, at least, that we talk about is a feeling of surrender, the sense that the person isn't making it happen themselves. It's something that's happening to them. Uh, they get kind of taken over. They surrender. You know, you mentioned like letting go, the release. Um, and so those are some of the real important characteristics 
that people ultimately say, yeah, when I have all those kind of things combined, that that's something that feels spiritual. And then with those, with those points in mind, you know, there is that transformation. So very frequently it happens when somebody hits rock bottom or, you know, is really struggling internally with, with their own stressors, their own issues, whatever it is that they're facing, that this spiritual experience then actually, you know, not only do they identify it as such, but it does change them and transform them. Uh, and what's also fascinating from a brain perspective is it seems to do this in a very short period of time. It's not the way we typically think about, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, psychotherapy, which takes, you know, months, years and so forth to, to kind of modify how a person thinks. But sometimes, you know, literally within seconds, it's like it rewires the whole brain. And, and again, that's something that we're trying to understand and figure out because it is, it, it is a very dramatic kind of shift in how a person thinks about the world. Let, let me stop you with, I've got a bunch of things that I, I want to get at. And, and one is this, this speed aspect, the, the, the quickness with which this happens. It has not been my experience that people, because I you know, do a lot of people that have these sorts of experiences. One, one thing they do always report or typically report is that something stepped in from the outside. That is, a, that is yeah. a, like something brought this to them. It didn't feel like it came from inside them. Even though the brain scans, I'm assuming, show that it comes from inside them. Yes? Well, what's interesting is, to just pick up on that particular point, one of the things that we have seen in practices where they feel that sense of surrender um, is that their their frontal lobes actually start to shut down. Sure. So you know, normally the frontal lobes um, turn on when we're concentrating, when we're purposely doing things. And so the shutting down of the frontal lobes in this context is – is, is consistent with that feeling of it's not me who's doing it. Now, again, you know, one can argue exactly what's happening, you know, is, are we just, you know, kind of having other parts of our brain that are taking over. And so we don't feel like we're making it happen, even though it is coming from somewhere else in the brain. Uh, and of course, I mean, uh, as I listen to you, ask me a question that's coming from outside of my brain, but it's my brain that ultimately processes it and tries to understand what it is and then tries to react to it. So, you know, for those who are very, uh, you know, uh, profound believers, um, when their frontal lobe shuts down, that's how, you know, that opens them up to be able to enter into this uh, other realm and, and think about things a little bit differently. And, and so, again, I'm, you know, I, I, I think it's important to kind of be open to the possibilities to see, you know, where we what we can learn and how we can try to figure out yeah, that as makes best sense. as possible what these experiences are. That makes sense. I'm guessing also that large, that vast parietal area that we've ignored throughout neurological history is doing something. It, it, it's caught my – it's captured my attention a little bit, that area, because uh, not in terms of speech and, and all the stuff that we do know goes on there and auditory and stuff and faces and whatever. But – uh, I once got a chance to sit down with Antonio Damasio and his wife, and they pointed at, at scans. He goes, that's where the self is. He goes, that's the self. He goes, that's what goes away in Alzheimer's. The self is the right. first function to be diminished, and that's where it is. And he just just kept emphasizing that. So I'm guessing that's very much involved in all this. Well, absolutely. I mean, this is an area that uh, going back you know, 20, 25 years, we were thinking that this is involved in uh, – in that, in the sense of self and that sense of um, how that sense of oneness and unity, that if this is an area of our brain that turns on to help us create that sense of self, when it shuts down, we lose that sense of self. Now, as you said, sometimes that can be pathological. It can be a dissociative state. It can be Alzheimer's where you actually, you know, completely lose yourself in a very problematic kind of way. 
uh, in the mystical experiences and the spiritual experiences, that loss of self um, is is very profound. Uh, and there's it actually is a more positive kind of an experience because the person now feels that they have become one. You know, their, their ego self goes away, but it, it's in in doing so, it connects them to God, the world, the universe. You know, whatever uh, some universal consciousness. Um, in a, in a different kind of way. So we feel that sense of connectedness and oneness that winds up being a very important, very powerful part uh, of the experience. And, and you're bringing up an interesting point too, which is, you know, another way of getting at these kinds of experiences, what happens to a sense of religion and spirituality when they develop Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's strokes and so forth. And, and some of the data has pointed to the fact that when you have an injury to that parietal lobe, um, people are, you know, not only do you have problems with the sense of self uh, negatively, but sometimes they also express more feelings of self-transcendence that mm-hmm. they actually kind of get beyond the self. And again, that that can be a positive at times, but sometimes can be negative too. Isn't it interesting? The first three steps of twelve step are about essentially bringing on that letting go, connecting with something bigger than yourself, blah, blah, blah. It's it's a, a cognitive behavioral way of trying to access that same mechanism, or epist- uh, uh, phenomenology, as you say, which is kind of interesting to me. Here I am reminding you again that health insurance doesn't always cover the cost of a medical emergency flight. Even with comprehensive coverage, you can still get hit with a copay, a deductible, all kinds of things. Protect your family and your finances with an Air MedCare Network membership. As a member, if an emergency arises, the expense of an air medical transport is completely covered when it's flown by an AMCN provider. Membership's cost as little as $85 a year, covers your entire household every day, even when you're away from home. Pennies a day. We all know the unexpected can't happen. An AMCN membership is protection that no family should be without. And for a limited time, as a Dr. Drew podcast listener, you will get up to a $75 e-gift card when you join. Simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew. Use that offer code Drew at airmedcarenetwork.com. Back well, to- and I think there are different pathways to getting in that. And, you know, that uh, in, in the varieties uh, of spiritual experience that we talk about, there are so many different avenues. And some of them, you know, are things like the 12 step programs and, and uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and, and their approaches. Sometimes it can be a very cognitive, you know, meditation or prayer. Sometimes it can be a ritual. It could be dance or, you know, uh, or, or even something creative or being in nature. And so there are a lot of different, you know, goes back to what we were talking about before about the phrenology piece that, there's these kind of networks of the brain that are all they're operating. And so how we start to access them, um, there could be lots of different approaches that people can take that ultimately lead to these similar kinds of elements and similar kinds of experiences. The, the speed with the, the back to that topic of speed of change. Sure. It's not been my experience that they're actually changed. My experience <laughs> is, is that they're motivated and they're clear about the direction they need to go. And, and they start going very intensely, and that changes them. And, and sort right. of maybe their attitude changes, and their again the motivational state changes, and the insight changes. It, it still takes me a long time to get them actually to change, even though they they're well, fully on board. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. right. And and that's and that is true. I mean, you know, there's there's the moment. Um, you know, uh, when you talk about you know enlightenment, for example, that means two things. One is the moment that you have this sort of new way of this awakening, this new way of thinking, but then there's the process that occurs afterwards and how, 
uh, how that all becomes incorporated into the way in which you think and the way in which you behave. And, and it, I mean, what's also interesting, you know, apropos of what you were just talking about, is that sometimes people, you know, are able to integrate that experience very easily into their life. And, and it really does change them. And, and they're able to kind of find that new path forward uh, relatively easily. Other people really can struggle with it at times, you know, especially when it has nothing to do with the kinds of experiences or the beliefs that they originally had. And, uh, you know, trying to decide, do I need to leave my religious tradition that I've, I've believed in for 40 years or whatever, because now I've had this experience, which seems to be taking me in a completely different direction. Um, you know, the, there, there can also be these, the, you know, religious struggles, spiritual struggles that people have, existential struggles um, that, that either arise out of these experiences or ultimately lead people down the path towards these experiences. Yeah, it, it is interesting. You're, you're, you're so right that it, it allows for massive change oftentimes. Things that they couldn't do before, you know, changing career, changing relationship, and they do it just kaboom. That's I, I, right. I see it. I've got clarity. I have no choice. On we go, and, yeah. and that's that's part of it. the The other thing, the the understanding thing, the figuring it out feeling. Yeah, you know what patient group, and it's actually a, for my in, from my perspective, an actual confirmatory symptom of the syndrome. A group that always announces with great flair, I figured it out. I see it all now. I understand everything. Acute mania. Acute mm. mania will, will typically announce that. So it's interesting. I wonder what the overlap is because there is elation in mania. There is elation in these experiences sometimes. Um, in mania, there's grandiosity. In this, there's actually kind of the opposite in a way. The self kind of goes under and into something else. Right. What, what do you make of that? Well, you know, I, I think, you know, from the neurotheological perspective, a lot of disorders and, and their intersection with religious and spiritual phenomena, for lack of a better term, um, is a very important thing for us to look at. Uh, you know, you mentioned mania uh, and, and certainly people become hyper religious or like you said, sometimes they feel like now they understand it. And, and I think that gives us some clues as to the parts of the brain and, and, and even, you know, down to this, you know, starting to get it like the neurotransmitters. That might be involved in those balances or imbalances that might be part of what leads to those different kinds of experiences. Um, so, so I think that that certainly does have a relationship. Certainly, schizophrenia is another, you know, very well-known one. The people who believe that they've become the Messiah or something like that. Um, and you know, we can think about well, you know, we know that schizophrenia is involved in the dopaminergic pathways and abnormal, you know, uh, connections and, and yeah. networks and so forth. So, you know, I, I think that that all. There are pieces of a puzzle. You know, we can look at what is the relationship between religious and spiritual experiences and this issue, this problem. Yeah. But what's also interesting is that while that does happen in people with mania, it doesn't happen to all people with mania. Right. So, no, no. And I, um, and I want to really emphasize that uh, for people that want to sort of make something out of that, a sick brain, an abnormally functioning brain and a normal brain are different things in vast, important ways. And it's literally like saying, I just saw something move fast. It could be a car. It could be a cheetah. It could be an, uh, a jet engine. They, they all move fast, but they are right. entirely different things. And, right. and so I, I want to sort of really disavow people of anything that would want to pathologize what normal brains experience. Trust me, they are different. They can overlap yeah. and the symptoms can be the same, but believe me, 
and and it's mostly different based on, of course, the biology and the and the biochemistry, but also the natural history. The yes. illness has a natural history that ends badly, and mm-hmm. and it has a treatment, and it right. responds to treatment. These are not progressive. You know, they don't have a natural history, spiritual experience. They have a they have a phenomenology that they you can follow that phenomenology. But there, it's not a natural history that has a medical relevance. So I really want right. people that pe- people are not clinical. Don't kind of get weird about that distinction. But I, I want to yeah. draw that distinction. But we, we are we are. There's so much you and I could talk about. I want to make sure we we get into the meat and potatoes here. Can, can I just because uh, yeah. let me just pick up on that because yeah. what you said is incredibly important. Um, you know, and we do talk about this in our book too about you know what. First of all, you how do we define what normal is? And you know, so for people who say uh, you know, I heard the voice of God. You know, how do you distinguish a, halluc- a schizophrenic, psychotic hallucination of hearing a voice versus somebody who is having that spiritual experience that maybe a one-time event and and changes their life in in very positive ways? And as you said, you know, how do we ultimately decide that? Is it their adaptability? Is it the history that they have? Um, you know, what are the other elements that are going on? And I've even thought in my own mind, you know, you could have a schizophrenic patient who has a normal religious experience. And of course you can have a quote unquote normal person who has an abnormal religious experience. That's true. So there's a lot of interesting permutations to thinking about all of that. That's true. (laughs) But I really just want to get people to understand there are conditions, there are site diagnoses that have a a unique biology associated with them. And that is that I I just don't want to get, but it is. And I also appreciate very much your point that we have to be careful about over pathologizing Religious and spiritual experiences, yeah, 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 because yeah. people do that as well. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Okay, so um, gosh, there's so much we could talk about. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm guessing you went a little bit into psychedelics and what they give. Yeah, you want to yes. talk a little bit about that. But I, what I really want you to talk about is what's the biology from your perspective. But go ahead, sure. and give me a little primer on psychedelics first. I, I want to do three things. I want to do psychedelics. I want to do philosophy, because we keep talking about phenomenology, we've not really defined it yet, I'm, which, I'm wondering which sure. phenomenological sort of, you know, are we talking about Heidegger, are we talking about Hegel, are we talking about Habermas, what are we talking about here? Uh, and and uh, so psychedelics, philosophy, and what the hell is the biology from your perspective? What, what, have sure. you, what, have you, what do you think? So talk uh, well, to me about psychedelics first. But I hope you have about eight or 10 hours. I uh, know. <laughs> that's what's bothering me. We have about 10, minutes, so 15 minutes. All right. I'll try to be brief. Well, I mean, the psychedelics, again, you know, sort of like with the, the, the various disorders that people have, to me, is another piece of the neurotheological puzzle. And it's an important piece because, um, you know, we the one real advantage is, is that they are, you know, what's going, you know, when somebody's taking it. So you know you, you have sort of a, a more time limited perspective on what's going on, and to a large extent we know where they go. You know we know that they go to the serotonin system, or the, you know we know what receptors they affect, um, and and so you know there, there's a lot of benefit that we can get from studying these experiences. And as I'm sure you know, you also well know. I mean, a lot of people are now looking at psychedelics as a way of, of using them therapeutically, mm-hmm. um, and in large part there's a connection between the the spiritual nature of the experience and the improvements that people seem to have from a psychological perspective. Um, and in, in our survey of spiritual experiences that, that forms an important part uh, of our book, uh, where we had a couple thousand people talk about their spiritual experiences, when we looked at those that were you know, more natural versus those that occurred when somebody was taking a psychedelic uh, compound, 
there's a great deal of overlap. So, you know, it does become hard to say, well, you know, exactly where that differentiation, where that differentiation may be. I think ultimately, you know, part of what's very important in the context of psychedelics is that is context. And, you know, I mean, if, if somebody's taking some drug at a, at a, at a, at a, a, a rave party or something like that, well, you know, most likely it's probably not going to elicit some transformational yeah. spiritual uh, experience, but if it's done under appropriate settings and, and uh, you know, in, in an appropriate context, it, it may uh, yield these kinds of experiences. People refer to them as being highly spiritual. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's very important for us to continue to look at and, and to understand uh, what those experiences are and, uh, and, and what the, and it helps us towards that next question about the biology of those experiences. From the spiritual standpoint, from a therapeutic standpoint, we're going to try to answer those questions in terms of right. utility and duration of clinical effect, that kind of thing. But from the yeah. spiritual perspective on psychedelics, my experience has been, although there's huge overlap in terms of how they describe these things, somehow the, the plant and do stuff kind of wears off. Unless there's something, some practice that they turn to to try to sustain thing or reaccess it, am, am I right about that? Um, you know, for for some people, yes. Uh, for some people, uh, it does seem to have a, a more pervasive effect. Um, it, it you know it can meet a little bit of that criteria that we talked about earlier and and, and transform people. Um, so you know, it does depend. And again, you know, you get into some interesting questions about well, why did this wear off in this person, but in another person, it became something that was you know, much more profound and much more relevant. And again, maybe, maybe it just had to do with what they were prepared for, their con the context within which it occurred. Um, so, you know, there, there's definitely some very important uh, questions to be addressed as far as trying to understand what what those experiences actually are. And um, to, to, to twist a little into the philosophy piece of it, you know, one of the things that I, I try to remind people about is that in our Western mind, in our Western perspective, we tend to say, okay, well, you know, somebody took this drug, they had the experience, the drug caused the experience, it's purely artificial. And of course, you know, there's shamanic cultures throughout the world where people have taken these different substances. And for them, it kind of, you know, elevates the brain, elevate, elevates the mind, it gets, it's a doorway into the, the supernatural and so forth. So just because it, it changes our ways of thinking about things, um, there are other philosophical perspectives that can be taken that uh, and again, I'm not saying one is right or, or not. I, right, I don't I get know it. yet, but I get it. But it, you know, it raises some intriguing questions about you know how exactly is our brain? You know, what is our brain perceiving in the world? Um, you know, uh, it, our our brain has its limitations in terms of what we can see. So maybe uh, you know, when I, I when I wake up in the morning, I wear glasses, and and so the yeah. world's a very blurry place. I put my glasses on, I see the world clearly. And who's to say that taking a, a drug like psilocybin doesn't actually get your brain to see the world in different ways. And the question ultimately is, is it accurate? And and ultimately, is it is it valuable and and, uh, and or therapeutic for people? And, and that's a bigger question. I was just thinking it must have been difficult, actually, to, to figure out the scope of spiritual practices you get to because you, in your book, because there are so many things that can induce these kinds of intense experience, so many things. Right. Uh, that that it, that it's almost an endless list of of you know sometimes it's you know intense skydiving or something or some you know, group experience or a ritual experience or who knows uh, right. it's kind of interesting all right I'm going to keep you moving forward though because we are we are we are running out of time uh, 
I'm trying to decide. Let's do philosophy next. Uh, so when you say phenomenology, are we just talking the experience in and of itself, right? Staying with the experience. Yes. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, on a more. And, and by the way, really get philosophical. We have to say in and of itself or in and for itself. Which is it? <laughs> so well, go ahead. It's, I, I'm always a hedger. So I'm going to say it's a little bit of both. Okay. Um, okay. You know, uh, sir, I think one way to look at the question about phenomenology is you know, what are people actually subjectively feeling right. and thinking and, and, and right. as part of these experiences? And I, I think it's fundamentally important um, in all of cognitive neuroscience and certainly in, in this whole neurotheology field of studying spiritual experiences, what are people really feeling? In fact, um, a lot of the data that we talk about in our book is based on a survey of about 2,000 experiences, and we got a narrative from them. You know, we said, describe the experience, and then we can do these factor analyses and, and content analyses say, what words did they use and how did they use it? And how often was it used and, and how can we differentiate and, and look at all of these things? So, so that's very important because ultimately when you get back to the brain question, um, you know, the only way for me to make that tie in is what did you actually feel? Did right. You, you know, oh, you felt love. Okay. Well, what are the areas of the brain that might be involved with the feeling of love? Um, so that in one, you know, in one way is very important uh, as the phenomenology of the descriptive phenomenon, descriptive phenomenon. It's a descriptive phenomenon. Yeah. Now, now, I think that neurotheology as a broader field, you know, it ranges from the esoteric, the philosophical that you're talking about to the very clinical and very practical. So on the esoteric side, you do get into this discussion about, well, you know, how are we actually experiencing reality and what does that mean? And you mentioned people like Heidegger and Husserl and so forth, um, you know, trying to understand all the different ways in which we experience the world and then use those experiences to help us find an answer as to what's really out there, what's out there in the world. And, um, and in many ways, my whole drive to explore this whole field and, and these kinds of questions, um, it really was a very fundamentally simple question is, what is the nature of reality? And how do we get to know that reality? And so phenomenology became something that I became you know, philosophically, became very I have no interested doubt. In. I have no, me too. You just yeah. naturally go there. And, and let me give a 30 second primer for people to give you a sense of the field. Um, so, uh, Andrew has, is wearing glasses. And so he's not aware he's wearing glasses there, but they're the closest thing to his vision and his head. But they're actually far away from an experiential standpoint, from a phenomenological standpoint, even though they're near. They're actually far experientially. That's the kind of stuff that I know it sounds weird, but that's what. Or, or what was the other thing I was going to? Oh, like okay. And so if you have a, if you like, we're, we go to Adam's garage and there's a hammer on the wall. What is that hammer? Well, it's a collection of atoms, but uh, a T O M atoms, uh, and it's steel and this and that, and you can describe it. And there's, but really, it's a from monologically on the wall, we identify it as a hammer ready to hand, ready at hand, ready to, to be deployed as a tool. And then we put it in our hand, it's something else. We transformed it now. We can pull things out, nails out with the claw part. We can hammer it. It can be a weapon. Is it a weapon? Is it a tool? Is I, you know, all these things are what phenomenology struggles with, even right. though the reality is just a bunch of atoms. You know, it's a you know sort of a inorganic structure called steel, and it just we've shaped it into something that gives it a meaning and purpose, and it's, it's it gets very weird very fast yes, <laughs> in this world. Well, and, and one of the things that's interesting, to, you know, to me in particular, which 
touches on all of this too. It, it starts getting into the whole discussion about consciousness and what consciousness yeah, is. Yeah, what we, yeah. Oh. You know, and and so right. is that hammer? That's a new podcast. We'll come back and do the kind. So, but <laughs> but go ahead. Is that hammer what? Is, is the hammer really just the atoms, or is it you know? Yeah. Is the fundamental stuff of the universe consciousness? Yeah. From which yeah. everything arises. Because our consciousness, what is what in in sense is endowing the hammer with toolness, purposeness. Right. It's, right. It, it. Oh my God. You, and, and, have you, know, you ever I'm, read uh, Being in Time? Have you ever tried to read both books of that? I, I have. I have gotten through it in various <laughs> so, ways. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Just as an aside, he eventually decides that really, sort of, care and time are really the, the essence of the world. But time has it, it's not clock time; it's temporality. And then he calls that temporality Tate, and it's like it's very weird. So, in the remaining uh, eight minutes, or maybe seven minutes. Okay. Give me a primer on the neurobiology, your, your best guess, your best synthesis of the neurobiology of all this as you understand it. We've talked about the sure. frontal lobe shutting down. We talked about the parietal lobe being the self thing that's kind of doing something. I'm sure the I'm sure the amygdala gets tied in somehow. So what's happening? You got it. Now, well, so you know, I think the the most important thing for everybody to realize is that there's lots of different and, parts of the and, brain. And, and, and before we finish, and is the sure. body involved with this? Is the sympathetic? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm guessing. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Very much so. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, in many ways, you know, there isn't just one part of our brain, as I said earlier, that that is part is our spiritual part of the brain. It's so many different parts of the brain, and then as you just mentioned, our brain is intimately connected to the body, and so you know, all the ways in which our body feels things. Um, and, and, you know, when, when we get anxious, our stomach t- turns and, and when we get excited, our heart races faster and, and we feel all those things. So, uh, in fact, uh, several models of mystical experiences and, and very much a part of, of how we have thought about these experiences, one very fundamental part is what's going on in the body through the autonomic nervous system, because in the autonomic nervous system, as I know you know, and, and hopefully much, much of the audience knows, there's this sympathetic, which is our, our arousal side, and then there's the, the calming or quiescent part, which is called the parasympathetic nervous system. And when you look at spiritual experiences, sometimes they are incredibly energizing. And you even mentioned, you know, the mania connection earlier, but, you know, there's a very powerful sense of arousal and, and awe and, and, you know, all these feelings going on. It can be a very uh, active kind of process. Sometimes it's, it's just the opposite. It's an enormously blissful kind of experience and everything just kind of settles down and we just feel that we're just kind of floating with, you know, everything that's out there. Uh, and sometimes it's a little bit of a combination of both. So in, in our work, we talked a lot about um, one side or the other of the autonomic nervous system that then is felt throughout the body. But then ultimately the autonomic nervous system connects up into the, into the hypothalamus and into the amygdala, some of these areas of our brain that are very involved in the emotional processes. So when we talk about the intensity of the experience, um, we think a lot of that does have something to do with the amygdala turning on, which notifies us that it's it's fundamentally an important experience for us. We feel it in our body. That's also part of the intensity of the experience. And, and so those are some very essential elements that tie those different parts of our brain and body together. We talked already, as you mentioned, about the frontal lobes, which may be in the early phase of a practice like meditation will turn on. But then when the person feels that sense of release or letting go or when, you know, even if it's a psychedelic, or even if it's just a spontaneous experience, it's something that just kind of happens to them. And the frontal lobe appears to shut down, uh, as well as the parietal lobe, where the person loses their sense of self and loses their, their sense of, uh, of space and time and so forth. 
So there's a lot of those different kinds of changes going on. And the, the sense of, of clarity, I think, that we talked about, you know, one area of the brain that we have looked at a little bit and we're trying to figure out this overall relationship um, is in the thalamus. Um, so, you know, the thalamus is a very central structure. Uh, it's a very central relay. It connects different parts of the brain to each other. Uh, it's involved in bringing up important sensory information into the brain. So some people think about the thalamus as being kind of the the, the seat of consciousness or, or certainly the seat of, of sort of how we put our perspective of reality together. And we have seen, you know, very substantial changes going on in all these areas that I've just mentioned, including thalamus, when people have these experiences. So there's a lot, you know, and, and there's lots more. I mean, all there's social areas of the brain that can be affected. There are other emotional aspects. Of course, if somebody sees something or hears something as, or, or feels that they're hearing or seeing something, then the visual and the auditory areas become involved. And then, you know, while we can talk about all these different parts of the brain and the different uh, networks that are involved as well, um, we ultimately want to get at the neurotransmitters. And that's where things like the psychedelics help us out a little bit. But um, again, I, I think it's probably a very complex array of different neurotransmitters that some turn things on. You know, we have excitatory neurotransmitters that make us feel that, that powerful sense of arousal and love and so forth. And then there are inhibitory neurotransmitters, um, for example, uh, GABA, gamma-aminobutyric gamma acid, uh, which may actually help to shut some of those areas down, like the frontal lobe or the parietal lobe. And there have been some studies with imaging that show all of these different kinds of changes that I'm just talking about, that the, the frontal lobes turn down, the parietal lobes turn down, well, and GABA goes up, and, and you're, so you're, forth. You're, you're sort of straddling the world of... Uh, you know, direct synaptic function with, with regulatory function of the synapse, which is That's a right. level right. to all this, which is gets extremely right. complex. Right. Um, but of course, you know, to me, the biggest question, which is still, you know, goes back to the philosophy a little bit. Uh, and I always challenge my students with that is that, you know, with these experiences, with every experience that we have, you know, we've got neurons firing, we've got metabolism, blood flow, uh, we've got dopamine, serotonin, GABA and all these things. You know, where in all of that is the actual experience itself? Where well, in all now of we're that back is to the phrenology. It, it, we're back, right? <laughs> now we're <laughs> well, back. I wanted to tie it all the way back to the beginning. Well, I, let me though. You did mention the social brain, and in, in my yeah. world, some sort of interpersonal experience is often part of this. In, in my world, I'm not saying it's universally part of the spiritual experience, but in my world, it's often part of this. And I, I do get this. I do feel strongly that. Consciousness is something that emerges intersubjectively, and and I just think there's something about the sh- and the again the unity and the whole, and the, there's something about the shared human experience that, that in terms of how our brain evolved, that is a really important part of everything in the human experience, including the spiritual experience. Yes, well, you know, the very early work that I did in neurotheology uh, with a colleague of mine who was an anthropologist by training, we talked a lot about rituals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so much of this is driven by rituals, the ritual practices, meditation and prayer, which elicit these kinds of feelings in the brain, this, the, this sort of the surrendering oneself, the loss of the sense of self. But where do all these rituals come from? Well, they come from, ultimately, they come from animal rituals which are mating rituals, mm. which are social rituals. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're how we bring ourselves yeah. together, how we bring ourselves yeah. together for mating, how we bring ourselves together to form a community, a society, a family. Um, yeah. And so you're absolutely right. You know, this is, it's fundamental to the ways in which our whole brain kind of processes information about the world itself. So, you know, are we making a connection to our family member, to our community, 
uh, to the universal consciousness, to God, you know, whatever the person may believe in. Um, I think there's a lot of overlap. And that's why we do see a lot of these social areas being involved and probably even neurotransmitters like oxytocin and so forth that are probably related to helping people make that connection. And, uh, and that is a, a fundamentally important part of, of virtually everything that is spiritual and, and religious. Everything right. Connection because ultimately connection is to other humans really and to, and to the exactly. world. And to the world. Um, I, I'm, I think you and I have talked about Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory in, in the past and, and, and I'm going to bet that the Vegas figures prominently into all this in terms of causing the shutdown. You know, I, I'm just hearing you talk about the thalamic relay. And, you know, really the, the thalamus has, has a, a, a master below it at the midbrain. And right. those three vagal nuclei are extremely powerful on relaying information of the parietal lobes and shutting them down. It's, you know, dissociation is something that's mediated through the vagus nerve. And in a right. weird way, this is a kind of a non-pathological dissociation that people get into, which is interesting. But exactly. literally, <laughs> I mean, there are – I think we need to do another podcast, you and I, because – I'm happy to do that. Yeah, I think we need to because um, we didn't, you know – we didn't get into consciousness and God at all. <laughs> We're just, you know, and I, I feel like I... They're not that, that's not that important, is it? Uh, no, little <laughs> simple topics like that. And I feel like people would want to hear about that. So I'm, well, doing we have, I'm happy to set that up. Okay. And, and, and I was also sort of curious, you, you mentioned awe and I was thinking about awe and the experience of awe and how it figures into all this too. So we, we yes. Gary, I think we have to do another one and... My, my, the problem is I'm going to forget some of what topic we – the landscape we covered and so we'll end up recovering some of it. But uh, I'll have to make notes to get, get us into consciousness and awe. And I have strong feelings about consciousness. I think that's what we talked about in the past too, you and I. We've talked about this. but A little bit, yeah. Yeah, but we'll, we'll get into that. But the book for this – as a primer so you can participate with us in this next upcoming pod – Get the book, Varieties of Spiritual Experiences, 21st Century Research and Perspectives. If you haven't, if this hasn't whetted your appetite, I don't know what you're made of. Go read it. Go check it out. And uh, Andrew Newberg, thank you for being here. Thanks so much. Take care. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Thank you.